almost 15 years ago, at the end of my first year of divinity school, I was offered a chance to spend the summer helping to excavate an ancient Canaanite settlement near the Sea of Galilee. I was incredibly excited, but upon arrival, it became immediately and abundantly clear that any fantasies I may have had comparing myself to Indiana Jones were sorely misplaced. Archaeological work was fascinating, but it was also unglamorous and grueling. Our team rose each morning by 4 a.m., hoping to complete the bulk of our digging before the sun was at its hottest. We crouched for hours in a dusty hole, brushing at a 3,000-year-old brick floor with what were essentially toothbrushes, taking care to avoid the occasional scorpion. By Friday afternoon, folks were exhausted, largely content to lounge by the motel pool. The exception was an older man named Gary. Gary referred to himself as a biblical geographer and planned to spend weekends driving around trying to pinpoint the exact locations, and I mean exact within feet, at which various events in the Bible had supposedly taken place. Now, I was young, curious, and broke, and Gary was kind. And so when he offered me a spot in his car in exchange for a negligible contribution to gas costs, I refrained from expressing my opinions about the feasibility of biblical geography and decided to see what I could see. After a Saturday spent driving around the Sea of Galilee, we arrived at Mount Tabor, the site traditionally associated with the Transfiguration. Inside the Church of the Transfiguration, which sits on top of the mountain, the air was hushed, filled with incense and that electric feeling of sacred mystery. I sat in prayerful silence, staring up at a luminous mosaic on the ceiling. Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, their faces made up of thousands of tiny gold tiles, gazed back at me. After a few minutes, I heard Gary walk up behind me. It didn't happen here, he whispered, <laughs> somewhat conspiratorially. Wait till next weekend, and I'll show you the real spot. And so when Saturday rolled around, we were off again, this time north to Mount Hermon, a huge, dusty mountain surrounded by arid plains. Mount Hermon is also, somewhat bizarrely, home to a ski resort. <laughs> After a car sickness-inducing drive to the summit, I found myself standing in a parking lot behind the closed resort, right between some questionable-looking public restrooms and a decorative plastic snowman, roughly three times my height. Sweltering in the 100-degree heat, I looked out over ski lifts and barbed wire into a closed military zone, a stark reminder of the pain and complexity that continues to permeate the land I was standing on. The entire place and all the sensations that came with it were utterly disorienting. But sure enough, gazing up at the ginormous snowman, Gary declared, well, 
This is it. Christ was transfigured right on this spot. As weird as this moment was, it was nothing compared to what Peter, James, and John experience in Mark's account of the transfiguration. Up until this point in Mark's gospel, Jesus' true identity has been a secret from everyone, even his closest disciples. And so we can imagine their shock on the top of the mountain when their teacher and mentor suddenly begins to emanate glorious, uncreated divine light. And as if that weren't bizarre enough, Moses and Elijah, two figures the disciples would have understood as the foremost representatives of God's law and prophets, appear out of thin air and start a conversation with Jesus. Peter, James, and John are understandably terrified. One of this gospel's distinctive characteristics is its less than favorable portrayal of the disciples. They often come across as bumbling and incompetent, failing to comprehend the significance of Jesus's life and ministry, even as it unfolds right in front of them. This moment is no exception. Mark tells us that it is because of his terror and because he doesn't know what else to say that Peter suggests constructing dwelling places for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah right then and there. This passage is frequently interpreted in a way that takes Mark's implicitly judgy tone and runs with it, criticizing Peter's desire to cling to this literal and figurative mountaintop experience, to bask permanently in God's radiance, when what lies ahead is actually the way of the cross. And understanding God's voice from the clouds This is my son, the beloved, listen to him, as a rebuke of Peter's cluelessness. But I think this interpretation misses the point. For one thing, it fails to recognize that in Peter's religious and cultural context, his inclination would have been entirely appropriate. Peter is a Jewish man, and so his precedent for responding to the material presence of the divine has been set by Jewish scripture. When Moses has a distinctly similar mountaintop encounter in the book of Exodus, God commands him to build a dwelling place, a tabernacle, in which the holy of holies will rest. The word in Mark's gospel that gets translated dwelling is the Greek word for tabernacle. And so if we think of Peter's impulse not as dumb or naive, but as exactly what his tradition dictates, we can hear God's response to it as something other than rebuke. We can hear it, I think, as both affirmation and challenge. God affirms Peter's reaction by confirming that he's seeing exactly what he thinks he's seeing, the holy of holies the presence of the divine in the form of a person. This is my son, the beloved. Peter's awe and fear, his desire to build a tabernacle, are spot on. And yet God demands an alternative to tent making, an alternative that is simultaneously simpler and a whole lot harder. Listen to him. Because the truth is that we can't really draw a distinction between this mountaintop moment 
and the cross that awaits, eventually, but inevitably, at the bottom. It's a false dichotomy. The manifestation of God's glory can't be mapped to a specific location or restricted to a particular category of experience. We live in a world that has always already been transfigured, a creation that is shot through with divine light, a sacramental universe in which every moment, from the transcendent to the devastating to the mundane, reverberates with Christ's presence. What's being asked of Peter and of us is to notice, to listen to him. Now, I'm not trying to minimize the significance of the transfiguration. This was a singular event none of us are likely to experience or even fully understand, at least not on this side of the grave. But I do think it was as much about Peter, James, and John as it was about Jesus. Jesus didn't suddenly become anything different than he had ever been. It was more that for a moment, Peter, James, and John were able to see him as he always is. Because the thing about incarnation is that God is never not present. It's just that this presence is usually mediated through the material reality of our lived experience. When this experience feels hard and heavy, as it often does, or mundane and superficial, as it also often does, the uncreated light of divinity feels pretty far away. And yet we are called to open ourselves to the reality of God with us, to summon both the energy and the vulnerability to recognize the transfigured Christ. With the publication of his autobiography, The Seven Story Mountain, in 1948, Trappist monk Thomas Merton became something of a poster child for the contemplative life. By comparing his withdrawal from the world after his tumultuous early years to Paradise Found, Merton's book served as a powerful recruiting tool for monasticism. And yet, on March 18, 1958, while running errands in downtown Louisville, Merton had a revelation that changed everything. He describes it like this. At the corner of Fourth and Walnut, in the center of the shopping district, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all these people, that they were mine and I theirs, that we could not be alien to one another even though we were total strangers. It was like waking from a dream of separateness, of spurious self-isolation in a special world. This sense of liberation from an illusory difference was such a relief and such a joy to me that I almost laughed out loud. I have the immense joy of being human, a member of a race in which God himself became incarnate. As if the sorrows and stupidities of the human condition could overwhelm me now that I realize what we all are. And if only everybody could realize this, but it cannot be explained. There is no way of telling people that we are all walking around shining like the sun. In this moment, Merton's sense of vocation began to shift. 
Even as he continued to live in isolation, Burton sought a convergence of the contemplative life with engagement in the world, with a growing call to political and social action. Merton's biographer writes, one of the things going on in him was the maturing realization, born of contemplation, that it is not possible to leave the world in any real sense. There is simply no place else to go. His experience in Louisville challenged the concept of a separate holy existence lived in a monastery. He experienced the glorious destiny that comes simply from being a human person and from being united with, not separate from, the human race. I don't think it's an accident that in the passage immediately following today's gospel, Jesus and his friends come down from the mountaintop and find that the remaining disciples have very publicly tried and failed to heal somebody. And so just as the divine has been manifest in resplendent light, so too is it manifest as Jesus cleans up the disciples' mess. Like Thomas Merton, like Peter, we are called to recognize the holy of holies through connection and contemplation in the life-altering moments when the veil is pulled back. And we are called to bear witness to this same presence in the circumstances of our day-to-day -day lives, that in our grief, frustration, exhaustion, in the faces of the people we don't like or hardly even notice, the transfigured Christ is there, shining like the sun. And it may not surprise you that despite several more weekends of adventure and misadventure on Gary's Holy Land tour, I never was convinced by the idea of biblical geography. And I still have no clue where the transfiguration happened. I don't know if Jesus stood with Moses and Elijah on ground now covered by soaring mosaics or on the future location of the plastic snowman. But luckily, I don't think it matters, because God's Son, the Beloved, is with us no matter where we are. And as we turn from the joy and clarity of Epiphany toward the long, hard way of Lent, may we have the wisdom and the courage to listen to him. Amen. The Chapel of the Cross is an Episcopal church in the heart of Chapel Hill and the university community. Find out more at thechapelofthecross.org. There you can find our latest news and events, connect with our pastoral care team, Faith in Action Ministries, and offer a prayer request. You can also find us on social media, on Instagram at thechapelofthecross, and on Facebook and Twitter at C-O-T-C, Chapel Hill. May you be nourished by the word to serve in the world.